If you please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, we're going to be in chapter 38 this morning. That's found on page 598, and we'll be looking at the entire chapter today. And if you remember when we first started this study in Isaiah, I mentioned that the book of Isaiah can be broken down roughly into two major sections. The first 39 chapters, or chapters 7 through 39, they basically deal with the Assyrians, the Assyrian threat. And then in chapters 40 through 55, they deal with the the Babylonian threat. And the events prophesied in these later chapters, they take place over 100 years after Isaiah's death. They are true prophetic visions. In chapter 7, we really start at the start of the Assyrian problem with when unfaithful King Ahaz, instead of trusting God as God promised, when this unholy alliance between uh, between the Assyrians and and, and, uh, the Israelites were coming to invade uh, Judah, instead of trusting in God, he turns to the world. He turns to the pagan uh, Assyrian Empire. And then in chapter 37, which we looked at last week, we see the resolution of this Assyrian problem. Chapter 37, this is the climax of this section. This is where we see that this conflict that had happened we see in 37. See where Ahaz refused to trust God and schemed and, and looked to the godless world for security. His son Hezekiah looks to God. We see, we see the faithfulness of Hezekiah. He looks for God's deliverance. And then we see God act in this chapter, in chapter 37. And it's a decisive and it's an amazing act. And God finally puts an end to the problem. And it's interesting, the resolution comes down to just two verses. There's only two verses. We've, we've gone through uh, 36 chapters, 37 chapters, and then it comes down to one or two verses. In chapter 7, verse 36, we see the Assyrian threat ended when the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Just like that, the problem was solved. 37, 37 chapters of problem. Right, just like that, it's resolved. And then in, in verse 38 of chapter 37, we see the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is assassinated by his own sons in fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah. Well, we're looking at chapter 38, and Lord willing, next week, chapter 39. These chapters function as a transition, basically a bridge between the two sections, between the Assyrian section and the Babylonian section. But the events that happened that we're going to look at today in chapter 38, they actually take place prior to what we looked at in the last two weeks, prior to 36, prior to 37. Now, it's a short time. It could be only a couple of days, a matter of days or or weeks or months, but we know it did happen the same year, so it's less than a year. But it is earlier, and I think this is important, because think what God uses. God uses the events that we read of in this chapter, 38, to prepare Hezekiah. To make Hezekiah the bold and faithful servant that we saw last week in chapter 37. So with that introduction, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 38. Here now the word of the Lord. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, The God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. 
Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun of the dial of Ahaz. Turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the ten steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me. Like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living he thanks you. As I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. And as we'll play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also said, What is the sign that I shall go to the house of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, as always, we need your spirit. So, Father, I pray for your spirit to be with us. I pray, Lord, that you will anoint my words, that you will speak through me, that I will speak your truth, your truth with power. And, Father, I pray that that truth will change each one of us, that you will unstop our ears, we will hear from you, we will see you, and that you will be praised and you will be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this chapter that we're looking at, this raises a lot of questions. At least it did for me. Basically, what's going on here? Why is, why is this faithful Hezekiah, this faithful servant of the Lord, why is he sick? Why is he going to die? If you do the math, Hezekiah is only 39 years old when the sickness, the sickness to death comes upon him. That is not old. He's a young man. He's a strong man. And Hezekiah was a good king. He was a faithful king. He was obedient to the Lord. Second Chronicles and Second Kings give us more information about about Hezekiah. It said he did what was right according to the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. See, in the very first month of his reign, as soon as he became king, at 25 years old, Hezekiah immediately goes and cleanses the temple. See, the temple had been neglected. It had been closed. Uh, there was no sacrifices going on. Ahaz had basically ransacked the temple. He had stolen the vessels, and he used these vessels to worship the foreign gods. He was an idolater. 
But not, not Hezekiah. Hezekiah sets things right. Immediately, right off the bat, first month, Hezekiah restored worship in the temple. And then he organized the priests. The priests so that they can again perform, perform their duties, perform their sacrifices. Duties that had been neglected unto Ahaz. And he, Hezekiah, removed the, the high places. He destroyed the Asherah poles. He even broke the, um, the bronze serpent that, that Moses had made in the wilderness. You remember where they looked upon the, the, the serpent and they were healed from, the, from being bitten? Well, this had become an idol. This had become a stumbling block for the people. And they were making offerings to it. See, Hezekiah was, was faithful. He set things right with respect to God. And Hezekiah's devotion to the Lord, it is commendable. But the question is, is Hezekiah ready? Has Hezekiah been tested? Tested under the pressures of battle? Is he, is he ready to stand up to Sennacherib? As he boldly did, as what we saw last week in chapter 37? Remember, Hezekiah was a rock. He went right to the Lord. He, did, he didn't even waver. Now, Hezekiah instituted religious reforms, reforms that were sorely needed. <clears throat> but he wasn't a warrior king. He wasn't like King David. He, he wasn't skilled at war. He didn't win many battles. So the question, again, is, is was Hezekiah up for the challenge? Was he ready to face the, the physical and the personal danger? Even with all his faithfulness, I don't think he was quite ready for this challenge. You say, well, why do I say that? Well, it comes down to something that we see in 2 Kings 18. <clears throat> so Sennacherib and the army, the Assyrian army, they had just taken the, the fortified cities of Judah. And in 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 16, starting verse 13, it says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, this is the same year that we're looking at in our study of Isaiah, chapters 36 to 38, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So far, so good. This is what we've read. This is what we've studied in Isaiah. But 2 Kings gives us new information. Here we see Hezekiah's initial response. We don't see this in Isaiah. And this takes place prior to the taunt that we saw two weeks ago from the Rabshakeh that we looked at in chapter 36, prior to what we saw in 37. So continuing 2 Kings 18, it says, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. <clears throat> and Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and gave from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah, from the first month <clears throat> that he had been king, he had been working zealously to restore the Lord's temple. This Lord's temple that had been ravaged by Ahaz. Now it is 14 years later, and Hezekiah, now Hezekiah is facing a real-life danger from the enemy. And what does he do? Well, he's just like his father. He goes back to the temple. He ravages the temple in order to take the gold from the temple, God's gold, and give it to the enemy. Give it to a pagan. Does this look like the faith that we saw last week? Not at all. See, Hezekiah was faithful during relatively good times. And this is important. This is praiseworthy. But the problem was he wasn't stress-tested. He wasn't battle-hardened. The question is, would Hezekiah's faith remain intact when he faced a real trial, when he faced a life-or-death situation? And from his willingness to sack the very temple that he had spent 14 years restoring, 
I think the answer is that he would not. Now, let's say it was a bad idea for him to try to, to negotiate his way out of this conflict and, and maybe even to, to pay some kind of tribute to the, to the king. I mean, it was clear that Judah was completely outmatched by Assyria. But by taking the gold of the temple, Hezekiah is, is, sing, <coughs> is signaling that he values his physical safety above his spiritual faithfulness. He's saying that all this temple stuff, this, this is just pretend. This is this faith. This is for, this is for the good times. But the Assyrians, they're real. That threat is real. <clears throat> this religious stuff is good when things are going fine, but when it comes down to it, when it comes down to saving our skins, we will give up our worship in order to be safe. That's what he's saying. Now, I don't think, know about you, but this attitude really hit close to home to me. I think it was really convicting to me. I think it should be convicting to all of us. Because didn't nearly every Christian church say the same thing three years ago? Didn't we say the same thing? It's, too much, it's much too dangerous to go to church. We, we might get COVID. You know, even, if, even if we meet, you know, people were meeting outside, people were wearing masks, some people were even wear, meeting in cars, and they said it was still too dangerous. And some churches went for years, years without meeting. Do we trust God with our physical safety? Do we seek to be obedient to him, even when it could be dangerous for us, when it could cost us getting sick, a sickness that could potentially be faithful, fatal? And I remember being very convicted thinking about the early, church, the early Christians, early Christians who met in the catacombs because it was illegal to worship. If they got caught worshiping, they could be put to death. Or even today, there are Christians in Muslim countries or totalitarian countries where what we are doing right now, they could face imprisonment or death for doing what we are doing right now. But they still worship. They needed to worship. They needed to worship the Lord. But many American churches, we voluntarily stopped. We stopped meeting together for years because we were afraid. And yes, Hezekiah's fear should be convicting to us. But even though Hezekiah was faithful, <clears throat> I don't think he was ready for this test. When the pressure was on, Hezekiah, I think, would have reacted just like his father Ahaz did. He would not have trusted the Lord, but he would have taken that carrot. Remember the Assyrians offered a carrot. If you give up, things will be relatively peaceful. You can stay in your land for a little while. We'll move you over, but you have to give up your identity. You have to give up worshiping the Lord. I think he would have taken that. I think ultimately, for the sake of physical safety, he would have led his people to abandon their God and become assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. So what God needed to do is he needed to get Hezekiah's attention, and he needed to do it quickly. He needed Hezekiah to fear God, fear him more than he feared the Assyrians. God had needed to become more real to Hezekiah than Sennacherib was. And the Lord did this by sending this sickness. And not just any sickness, this was a terminal illness that he gave him. And I know there are several people out here who have, who have faced serious illnesses, who have faced cancer, have faced have, getting a grim prognosis. And nothing gets your attention more, right? Nothing gets your attention more than really getting sick and getting a serious illness. I heard that it said that nothing cures being a hypochondriac more than actually really getting sick. Having a serious illness, it has the ability to give us a clarification to our thinking, a clarification to our priorities that nothing else can do. And Hezekiah's illness was not because God was mad at him. It was not because he was being punished for past unfaithfulness, because he wasn't unfaithful. He was very faithful in the past. This illness was given to prepare Hezekiah for what he was about to face. This illness was given to prepare and to strengthen his faith. It was given so Hezekiah would be successful. He would be the rock that we read about last Sunday when we looked at chapter 36. 
And God did not intend this illness to be a sickness unto death. He intended this illness to be a sickness unto faith. However, in order for this illness to achieve its purpose, Hezekiah had to believe. Hezekiah had to believe that he was going to die. Hezekiah had to despair of his own life and trust in God in order to give him the courage that he needed, the courage to resist surrendering to the Assyrians. His faith had to go from a, from a peacetime faith to a wartime faith. And put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. Imagine you just went to your doctor and, and they told you, you have a terminal illness. They tell you you're going to die. Uh, they tell you, put your, your affairs in order. You're not going to survive this illness. This is what my friend Steve Edwards was facing, who passed away two weeks ago. He was told, we've run out of options. We've done, every, we've done experimental treatments. He was at Duke University doing this experimental treatment, and the doctors came and said, sorry, it failed. It did not work. There is nothing else. Your tumor is not responding to anything we throw at it. Get your affairs in order. Your remaining time on this, in this world is short. But with doctors, there's, there's always a hope that they could be wrong, Right? They're fallible. They could be mistaken. There's always a hope that they got it wrong. And we hear stories of people all the time who were given a terminal diagnosis and they beat it, who against all odds and conventional wisdom, they were healed. I remember talking with my my friend and and fellow PCA pastor, Michael Dixon, last summer at General Assembly. And you may remember Michael Dixon. We were fervently, fervently praying for him. Remember, he had gotten COVID and he was in critical condition in the hospital. And he told me afterwards, after he had recovered, he told the doctor actually showed him a picture of his x-ray. And he said, these lungs, they're not compatible with life. He says, you're not going to survive. He said he didn't tell his wife this. He, was, he gave a little hope to his wife. But he was, the doctor was very clear with Michael. He says, you're not going to survive this. And they were, they were just really going to make him comfortable until he passed. But the Lord had different plans. The Lord answered our prayers and prayers of thousands of others and spared Michael's life. And, and Michael is now back in the pulpit and now pastoring a church. So doctors could be wrong. But it wasn't a doctor who made this pronouncement to Hezekiah. It was the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God Almighty that gave the message. There's no chance that he got it wrong. But Hezekiah is a man of prayer. And as we saw last week, what was his first week response? What is his first instinct? It was to pray. It was to seek the Lord. And Hezekiah was not going to accept this this. Uh, diagnosis without a protest. He was going to plead his case to the Lord in prayer. In verse 2, it says that he turned to face the wall to pray. Remember in chapter 37, when Hezekiah was distressed, he prayed, but he went into the temple. He prayed in the temple. And why did he, and, and, but now you see, he turns his face to the wall. And why is that? Why, why is he not going to the temple? That's not an option for him. It's because he was sick. He would not be permitted, as, as a person who's sick, you, you're not permitted in the, in the temple. It's not, it's not because you're afraid of getting contagious, no. It was because in the temple you had to represent wholeness, a person who had an injury, a person who was, who was lame or, 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 or didn't have you know, full use of their hands or something. They would not be able to go into the temple. So that's the same thing for him. So what he does, he does the next best thing. He just turns to the wall. He probably has turned away from Isaiah, turned away from his attendance because he wanted to be alone with the Lord. He wanted to do business with the Lord and pray. And let's now look specifically at this prayer. It's not a long prayer. It's only a single verse, verse 3. It says, Hezekiah prays, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with my whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Doesn't seem like a particular pious prayer, Right? In fact, at first glance, it looks like a, a, a pretty bad prayer. 
Like there are many prayers in the Bible that we can use as, as models for us. In fact, Hezekiah's prayer that we looked at last week in 37, that was a great model for us. That's the way we should pray. Remember his prayer? It was focused on God, focused on God's glory, focused on God being honored, focused on the world seeing who God is, that God is God. This is not that type of prayer. In fact, I, I would not advise any Christian to pray this prayer. This, this prayer at first sounds almost like a whine, right? It sounds like <clears throat> Hezekiah is whining to God that, that God's not being fair to him. But worse still, Hezekiah seems to be basing his prayer on himself, on his own goodness, on his own faithfulness. Right? Doesn't this sound like works righteousness to you? He's saying, you know, God, answer my prayer because I'm a good guy and I have done good things. But when we come before the Lord, we do not trust in ourselves. Nobody, no matter how good, no matter how righteous, nobody, nobody except Jesus Christ himself can, on their own good deeds, merit God's favor. This is a foolish basis to place our trust. But is this what Hezekiah is doing? Right? As Christians, we look at this prayer, and we, we rightly recoil at its legalism and its works righteousness. We cringe and say to Hezekiah, don't you know? Don't you know that there's no one that is righteous? No, not one. Did you read the book of Romans? Don't you know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Don't you know you can't approach the the Lord on your own merit? You must have a mediator. You need a savior. You need to plead the blood of Christ. That's your only hope. My friends, that is true for us. That is true for the Christian. But we need to remember that Hezekiah is not a Christian. Now, that that doesn't say he's not saved. No, he's not a Christian. He does not have the same revelation that we have. He does not have the full revelation of the gospel that we have. But what did Hezekiah have? It doesn't mean he didn't have anything. Hezekiah had the Mosaic Covenant. Hezekiah had the law. And this doesn't mean that there are different ways to be saved. Don't don't hear me saying that. Not at all. This does not mean that the people of the Old Testament were were saved by works and the people of the New Testament somehow are, are saved by faith. No. All people are saved the same way. They are saved by Christ. They are saved by grace. They are saved through faith. The merit of this salvation is only Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, whether it's from all the way from Adam to the last saint before Christ returns. The salvation merit is all the same. All people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are saved by Christ. The way of salvation is only through Christ, even for those who don't know Christ because Christ had not been yet incarnate. Because the person, the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, had not yet been born. But the merit is still Christ. Now that said, this grace and faith are expressed differently during the Mosaic Covenant than they are after the cross, after the resurrection. See, God gave the Mosaic Covenant by grace. And this covenant was accepted by faith. And this faith was expressed by obedience to the covenant stipulations. That's what showed faith. By by being obedient, that showed your faith. Not a perfect obedience, but a general obedience, a desire for obedience, like we see in Hezekiah. And God, knowing that we were not capable of perfection, he provided a sacrificial system. Sacrificial system that pointed to Christ, but the sacrificial system nonetheless would atone for their sins when they failed to be obedient to the law. And making use of the sacrificial system was part of keeping the law. And we see the stipulations of this covenant, the promises associated with keeping it, and the curses associated with failing to keep the covenant. We see this expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me just read these verses to you, about five verses here. It says, See, I have set before you today, this is Moses speaking, 
life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You are not, you shall not live long in the land that the Lord, that, that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. See, this was the standard. This was a standard for faithfulness given to God's people. And it was still grace, and it was still faith, but this grace and faith looked differently than it does now. In fact, it was failure for them to keep these stipulations that, that is the reason why they were in the same situation that they are now, why the, the judgment that Israel faced under Assyria and Judah would eventually face under Babylon came because of failure. However, Hezekiah himself was faithful. Hezekiah himself did meet these stipulations. And because he did, God's covenant agreement was that he should live. Hezekiah's prayer is not based on his own righteousness. He's not saying that God to, to God that he merited God's favor. Rather, Hezekiah is appealing to God's covenant. He's saying this is the basis of his prayer. His hope lies not in his own righteousness, but in God's promises to his, in his covenant. So Hezekiah is basically saying, I can't die because I have met the stipulations of your word. I am trusting in your promises. Hezekiah was clinging to God's promises. And since God cannot lie, God cannot go back on his word. God heard Hezekiah's prayer and healed him, giving him these 15 years left of his life. And it was all based on God's covenant. And it's, it, this is why he's, he's trying to get his, his, his attention. He's trying to understand when he's facing the Assyrians that you have this covenant with God and you are faithful to me. I will protect you. And it's important to understand, God didn't forget this promise. God didn't need Ezekiah to remind him. God didn't say, oh, I, I forgot. Oh, you're right. You know, you, you are faithful. You should live. Good catch. Thanks for the reminder. No, God's not saying it at all. God's healing, the healing of Hezekiah was God's plan all along. This illness was necessary to get Hezekiah's attention, to get Hezekiah to remember the covenant, to trust in him and not be fearful, not look to make deals with the Assyrian and compromise his faith in the sight of this danger, this physical danger. It was needed to get him to pray. It was needed to get him to, to deepen his faith so that Hezekiah would be ready to stand when this final confrontation came with the Assyrians. And to confirm God's promise to take away the illness and give Hezekiah this 15 more years, God gave Hezekiah a sign. He gave him a miraculous sign. And this was, again, another contrast with Ahaz. Remember, Ahaz refused to look at the sign. He said, I don't, I don't need a sign. I don't, I don't want a sign. That's because he decided what he wanted to do. He didn't want to trust in the Lord. But rather, Hezekiah now welcomes the sign. We see the sign given in verse 8. The sign is, Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. Right? This is a pretty spectacular sign. 
right? This is, this is not something you can say, well, that's a, con- uh, a, you know, a, a, a coincidence. You know, the sun just happened to go backwards. That doesn't happen. That is supernatural. This is on par with the, with the sign that was offered to Ahaz, the virgin giving birth to a, to a child. This is something only God can do. And it, it's pointless for us to speculate exactly what happened. Did the time go backwards? Did, did the sun go backwards? Did the earth start rotating backwards? Was it local? Was it universal? Right, we know now that if the sun actually, if the, if the earth stopped spinning and turned backwards, it would kill everyone. It would be catastrophic. But we don't know. It doesn't make sense for us to speculate. All we know is it's something that God did and only God can do. And there's symbolism here in the sign. The symbolism is, is, is time being restored to Hezekiah as he gets his 15 years back. You see the time going backwards. It's time being restored. But I think the most important thing here is that this would be something that Hezekiah remembered. This would be something that would get his attention. This would build his trust, build his confidence in God's power and commitment to keep his promise. Right? right. Who would be afraid of Sennacherib and the Assyrians if you got the God who had just made the sun turn backwards? Right? You had the, a God who was powerful enough to turn back time. Now, another thing that caused some misunderstanding is, is looking here at Hezekiah's hymn. This is what he wrote after his deliverance. If you look at it, it seems that he's, he's holding far too tightly to this life, does it not? Far more than you expect a person of strong faith. Right? As believers, especially if we've been battling a, a long, painful illness, we will welcome death. I remember my friend Steve, he was, he was ready to go. He was in constant pain for a year and a half. And he was ready to go to glory. And his sister had, had posted on Facebook, um, she, she, she was with Steve when he passed, and his last words, and these are amazing. These should be the last words of anyone. Right before he died, he says, awesome, 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 I'm going home. Right? Shouldn't that be our, awesome, 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 I'm going home. And he took his last breath. I pray that that's what, how each of us react when our final moment comes. And I remember the last time that I saw our dear brother, John Sorensen. I know Nathan was with me and Lynn was with me. It was right before we were heading to the SING conference and we stopped to, to pray with him. And the cancer was so advanced that he was no longer able to speak. And as I prayed for him, I, I mentioned an earlier time where, he, where I, he teased me a couple of weeks earlier, saying, you know, I'm going to get to see Jesus before you. And I mentioned that in my prayer. And I remember as I was praying that you heard John couldn't speak. All you heard was, that was a loud grunt of amen when he heard that. Because, yep, I'm going to see Jesus soon. I don't know if you guys remember when we were there that, that he had said. In fact, I have known many elderly saints when they get ill, they say, don't pray for me to recover. I don't want to recover. I'm ready to go home. This is my grandmother. I remember my grandmother, was, she, she would constantly say, you know, I'm ready. You know, her eyesight was going, she was in her mid-90s, and she said, I'm ready to go home. Don't pray for me to get better. And the Lord often uses the pain of an illness and, and really the steady decline that we have as we age, really to wean us from this world, to prepare us what he has next, what he has prepared for us next, which is so good we could not even comprehend it. But this is not what we see in Hezekiah, though. Right? This is not what we see. Hezekiah seems actually to fear death. He actually has an extremely negative view of it. For example, take a look at, at, at the words of his hymn in, in verses 10 through 13. He said, I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver's. I have rolled up my life. 
He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. See, that doesn't seem to make sense to us. You know, as, as believers, we know. We know this life is simply the shadow lands. We know it's simply a shadow of true life, of abundant life, of eternal life that we will have when we, when we leave this fallen world. And we know that any good and any joy that we experience here, it won't be lost. It's just a foretaste of what we will see so much bigger, so much greater, the greater feast that we will have for all eternity, we experience for all eternity. And it will get better and better. That's what we know as Christians. But what about Hezekiah? What about this hymn? It almost sounds like he doesn't expect to see the Lord in death. That he thinks that death will somehow separate him from God and, and from human companionship. Did Hezekiah have hope of eternal life? <clears throat> Again, we need to be careful not to judge Hezekiah based on New Testament revelation that we have. See, all God's people who had faith in him but died prior to the time of Christ, they are not lost. We will see Abraham, we will see Moses, we will see David, and we will see Hezekiah in heaven. But the revelation about our eternal fellowship with Christ and all the saints in heavens and, and the new heavens and the new earth, that didn't come until the New Testament. So we can't judge the sincerity of Hezekiah's faith by revelation that he did not have, but we now have. <clears throat> and this brings us to a very important point. Hezekiah's prayer here is not a Christian prayer. It's not a Christian prayer. This is not the type of prayer we should pray, nor is the prayer that we should expect to be answered. We do not have the same promises that Hezekiah had. See, sadly, many Christians think, many Christians who are facing a terminal illness, they think that their earnest and their, their faithful prayers are guaranteed to bring healing. <clears throat> and there's a heretical teaching, and it's so popular, so popular, teaching that says that it's always God's will to heal the Christian, that a Christian will always be physically healed if they have enough faith. If we have enough faith, we are guaranteed healing from every sickness. This is heretical. This is a lie. And then it says if they're not healed, it's, because, it's not because it wasn't God's will, right? Because it's always God's will for them to be healed. No, if they're not healed, it's because they didn't have enough faith. Their faith wasn't strong enough or sincere enough. And you see how wicked this teaching is? Not only does it give false assurance that's not there, it's not a promise in Scripture, it also makes those who are not healed feel like they're failures, <clears throat> feel like they're spiritual, moral failures, that they were the ones who didn't do it. They may even teach that they weren't healed because they're harboring some secret sin, kind of like what Job's friends told him. The sin is in the camp, and that prevents the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit can't work until you confess that sin. That's nonsense. And this type of false teaching, it stems from a, from a failure to understand not only the way grace and faith are displayed in the Old Testament, but also a failure to understand how God's promises and his word apply differently to the saints living and dying before and after the cross. See, my friends, as Christians, we do not have a guarantee for physical healing. Yes, we often pray, we, we are to pray for healing, and God is so often so gracious and often answers these prayers. And I have seen it many, many times where God has answered prayers. I just mentioned before my friend Michael Dixon. <clears throat> Another example is I remember about 10 years ago, my father was in the hospital in New York City. And he was suffering from uncontrolled internal bleeding. <clears throat> and he had multiple 
blood transfusions, but they were not able to get under control. And I remember my brother called me in, in, uh, from, you know, he was in New Jersey and I was in Virginia. He said, you better come up here. This does not look good. So we got the whole family. We drove up to Virginia. We came into the hospital. We saw my, my dad, and he looked awful. He was extremely weak. He was barely conscious, and our family gathered around him. And I remember we, we, we read a few chapters from John's Gospel. It was kind of funny because we're, we're in a Jewish hospital in, in New York City, and I'm reading John's Gospel, and the nurse comes in, and the nurse immediately starts, as I'm saying the words, she knew the words, and she smiles, and she says it along with us. And we got there. We prayed. We prayed for him. And then after that, we went back to my parents' home in New Jersey, and, and the next day we came back to the hospital. I remember walking in my dad's room. He's sitting up. He's, sh- he's shaved. He's able to walk around. It was a dramatic answer to prayer. We went out. We had, we had a lunch in there, and a few days later, he came home from the hospital. It was that quick that he was healed. We saw an answer to prayer. So God can, he often does, in his mercy, mercy answer these desperate prayers for healing and deliverance. But Scripture does not guarantee this. He doesn't say that he always will answer these prayers. But my friends, as believers, we have an even better promise. Better promises. Because scripture guarantees, it guarantees that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and called according to his purposes. Romans 8, 28. This means we can be certain, we can be certain that whatever illness, whatever trial, whatever difficulty... We are explicitly promised that this trial, this illness, this difficulty will work out for our ultimate good. And this gives us confidence. This gives us supernatural confidence. This gives us joy. As we we said in our confession, count it all joy when you face trials. We can count it as joy when we face this trial. But this is not the only promise we have. That would be enough, even if that was enough. But we know even though this trial or illness may be excruciating. My, my friend Steve, he was in constant pain. He was in un, unbearable pain for a year and a half. But we know in the midst of this trial, Christ says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13.5. He says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39. And my friend Steve said that in these times when he was in the most pain, when he was unable to sleep, that's when he felt Christ the closest. That's when he prayed. His, his prayers were the sweetest. And he said it, this kept him from despair. He actually said that this was both the best of times and the worst of times. That's how he described these times. He said it was the worst of times because the pain was nothing that he's ever experienced before. But it was the best of times because of the, the real and concrete presence and comfort that the Lord provided to sustain him through every step of that time and every step of that pain. You see, that's what we have. We know we're not going through this alone. When we see this, we say, I don't know how we can do this. We can't do this. We look at what Steve went through. We cannot go through that. But when the Lord carries you through it, he gives you that grace that you need for that moment. But even that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is that death is not the end of our existence, but rather death is the portal, the portal to real and eternal life that is so much better, so much better than anything that we could even contemplate in this fallen world. And Jesus' own words, Jesus' own words bring us unspeakable comfort as each one of us comp- contemplates the inevitable. That one day, and that day could be today, that day could be 80 years from there. But each one of us, one day will be our last day. And listen to Jesus' words. <clears throat> Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. So Jesus, the Son of God, the Almighty, second person of the Trinity, he has promised to take all that belonged to him, to be eternally with him. We will be with him in glory. Nothing that we experience on earth can compare to what he has in store for us for eternity. And for the believer, for the person who is united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and for the believer only, this is not true for the unbeliever, but for the believer there is no trial. There is no illness. There is no calamity that we need to fear. We are ultimately and eternally safe in his arms. And these trials cannot harm us. They cannot separate us from him. His word promises that he will walk with us. He will strengthen us through each of the trials. And we know that he, has, <clears throat> that he is using anything and everything that we face for our good and for his glory. And to prepare us. To prepare us for even greater good and to bring him even greater glory. My friends, this is our hope. This is our trust. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know what each person is experiencing here. I know some are in very difficult situations. Or some are going to face difficult situations. But Father, if we belong to you, your word promises that you are with us, that these trials cannot separate us. Your word promises that everything we face is given for our good and for your glory. And your word promises that when we have glorified you as you have foreordained, we would. And not a second before, not a second later, you will bring us home to glory when we will have true life, true rewards, and we will see you face to face. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone discouraged here, if there's anyone <clears throat> that hears my voice that is not, uh, that, that is, is, is overwhelmed by the situation, Lord, that that truth will come down and that will hold them fast. And, Father, I pray you will be glorified. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.